0: Welcome to the Future Charlotte Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. I've spent more than a decade studying Charlotte, first as a journalist and now as assistant director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. 20 years ago, this city looked radically different. No light rail, a smaller skyline, and breweries, what breweries? What will we look like in the next 20 years? That's what we're exploring on this show. Our guest today is Brooke Muller, who is Dean of the College of Arts and Architecture. Brooke, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Eli. It's great to be here.
0: So briefly, I know you're still fairly new to Charlotte and UNC Charlotte. Go ahead and just tell me who you are, what you do and how you came here.
1: Yeah, of course. So I studied architecture and my background is in architectural practice. I actually worked in Germany for four years with an office called Bainisch & Partner, uh, which was a fascinating place to be in the early 90s. The wall had just come down. Gunter Banisch was not only a very well-known architect, but a major cultural figure. They had just completed the Bundestag in Bonn when I was there. And, and actually, the way that they earned commissions by and large was through an open and anonymous uh, competition system So I worked on a lot of competitions, and what was so fascinating in that design culture is that um, well-known firms like the one I worked for had to continually invest in design, and it also afforded an opportunity for emerging architects to gain really significant commissions. So it was a very exciting place, and I also happened to rent rooms from the director of the Stuttgart Opera, and I could take my colleagues in the firm I was working with to the opera in the evening. It was just a wonderful experience. So I come back to the states, I was practicing in California, I knew I wanted to teach, started teaching at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, then um, went to University of Oregon. I was there for 15 years Um, and my work really focuses on the relationships between architectural and urban design and ecological systems and that work has led to uh, a focus on water systems and the built environment. And there's just fascinating, under-appreciated opportunities in the design domain to be thinking about the future of the uh, infrastructure that, that I would say is more um, equitable, it's more resilient, it's more ecologically responsive. So that's kind of the research that I do. I'm walking to work in Portland one day. A search firm calls up. They talk about this opportunity to be the dean of the college of arts and architecture at unc charlotte i really appreciated the way they described it i liked the fact that there's a light rail line in the city that was new at the time relatively new and i loved the disciplinary makeup or the constellation of fields within the college so to link performing arts visual arts and design um, is unique there's only a couple other models like that in the united states and that was really compelling to me actually when i worked in germany we worked really closely with artists and they weren't just brought in at the conclusion of a process but brought in in the very conception of the the problem that we were working on was greatly impacted by their sensibilities and practices so i just thought this could be an enormous opportunity and it has not disappointed at all
0: so as a fairly recent uh, Charlotte transplant. And someone with an extensive history working, not just you know on the West Coast, but overseas in a lot of different cities. What are some of the similarities and differences you see between the design culture and how we're approaching development in Charlotte, Portland, and any other places you've worked that you think, man, there's there's some interesting comparison or contrast there?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I think three things about Stuttgart, where I worked as an architect, Portland, where I was most recently in Charlotte, they're similar in size. So they're not New York or Berlin or Los Angeles. They're maybe second tier in terms of population. And yet it seems like there's a lot of opportunities for innovation in urban environments at this scale. So, And there's a lot of openness to new ideas. And I've certainly experienced that since coming to Charlotte. Um, we, there's similar issues and problems. Um The one thing about Portland, it has this reputation as being a national, if not a global leader in sustainability. And it was really great to be director of the little satellite architecture program there for several years. Um, And so their light rail, I mean, we have the blue line here, but there's the orange line, the red line, the green line, the yellow line, and on and on. So a really robust transportation infrastructure system there, which is a difference um, and then bike paths everywhere. So that was really neat. But I would also say a lot of the things that they did decades ago that have given it the reputation as this leader in sustainability and urban design, in some some ways inadvertently, the very good ideas that they had led to um, in unintended consequences. So for example, um, transit-oriented development, which is a great thing, get people out of their cars, but the real estate values associated with um, transit stops grew and grew and grew, and in some ways people could no longer afford, some people in the city could no longer afford to live there and therefore had to move to parts of the city where they perhaps didn't have that kind of access to um, the public transit. Um, and so I think when I arrived there and st- this is still going on, there's this reckoning, like, how do you create a city that's more green that's also uh, dealing with the impacts of gentrification, for example, um, and that the, the, this earlier generation of sustainable thinking progressive thinking about the city was inadequate to the challenges that the city was currently confronting. And so what's a next generation, instead of just responding to these challenges of rapid urbanization and climate change and growing inequalities... And lack of affordability. What's a proactive, integrated vision for addressing those things? That's that was what was happening in the, in Portland when I was there, and I see that conversation taking place in in Charlotte right now. So there are tremendous um, similarities as far as that goes.
0: And I have to ask: uh, Has there been any culture shock? I mean, Portland is a, a city you know that has a Portlandia TV show, and Charlotte, you know, is a book. A book about Charlotte called Banktown. So, fairly big contrast there in the popular culture, anyway, in terms of perception. Uh, what, what's your experience been like? Uh, well,
1: I found this t- to be an incredibly welcoming environment. I mean, the people are incredibly nice, and they're I, my strength in sustainability. There's just keen interest there, um, the, the recognition of the need to elevate that aspect of thinking about the future of the city and the built environment. So, I. I find this to be an incredibly rich and stimulating place with a, a rich culture or series of cultures. Um, I would also say I don't have a car. I live in the South End. My wife and my son still are in Portland when my son finishes high school. And so I live near the light rail. I can walk to the supermarket. I can walk to the pharmacy and restaurants, etc. But I live in this apartment complex. I would say it's me and a bunch of 28-year-old bankers which is fine. And I'd like to, I'd like to think that they think of me as this wise elder that they can seek counsel from. I'm not really sure if they think of me quite in that way, but it's good to dream. It's good to dream. You know, I, I try to, to be a wise sage when I can, but uh, you know, it is, it is more, I don't know, the downtown is more impressive in some respects than downtown Portland. Um, but in some respects, the similarities, it's not been a culture shock. It's actually fascinating to be in a the new American South. It's fascinating to be in a city as diverse as Charlotte is. There's obviously many problems that we're grappling with here. But um, overall, it hasn't been this kind of radical culture shift. Um, and again, in many ways, the similarities outweigh the differences.
0: And so, you know, as someone living along the blue line in a neighborhood known for nightlife, restaurants, energy, and all that, I think in some ways you probably saw more direct impacts from uh, COVID on that lifestyle than a lot of, of people in Charlotte. You know, I'm out here in the suburbs, in southeast Charlotte, and, you know, there are a lot of times when, except for the odd fact that everyone's kind of at home at three in the afternoon, and you see your neighbors mowing the grass in the middle of uh, work Wednesday, it doesn't feel that different. How have you seen COVID impact your day-to-day life? And more broadly, any predictions about what it might change in Charlotte moving forward and Charlotte's uh, development?
1: You know, when COVID first went down last, well, March, I mean, it obviously started before that, but when it was time to go online to teach, for example, And I have to say, being a dean of a college with dance and music and theater and art and architecture, urban design, I mean, that's incredibly hard to to suddenly teach a dance studio online from a studio environment. And people did extraordinary work. So it was this big shift. In this neighborhood, it got really quiet at night. And then there were certain times where it felt like we were emerging from or got over the peak and there was a lot more activity. And then it got quiet again. It's been a series of waves. And of course, we're still going through it. There are absolutely fascinating questions right now in my discipline, discipline of architecture, about the future of the city and how the pandemic's going to influence the way we think about organizing space, the way that we think about moving around. Um, there's this rather well-known story about REI building its corporate headquarters outside of Seattle, and they complete this kind of mega complex last March, if I'm not mistaken, and a couple weeks later they sold it, and they decided it would make more sense for them to buy these sort of satellite or pod spaces in downtown Seattle and outlying towns in the Seattle metropolitan area, and also create a clear set of protocols for working from home. And so you you look at uptown and, however, tens of thousands of square feet of, of office space, and you do start to wonder about the nature of these building types, how full they're going to be, and are we going to start to be thinking about repurposing this space? Um, a, a whole other dimension, but really important, where we know that the likelihood of spread of COVID outdoors is tiny, I mean, the, the fraction of COVID transmission cases in outdoor environments relative to interior space. And so does that make us think about uh, how we occupy civic space differently and with greater intensity and frequency, potentially moving forward into the future? The College of Arts and Architecture has, we occupy several buildings on campus, but there are three main ones. There's Row Hall, Robinson Hall, and Stores. And there's this arts quad space between these three buildings that is utilized in a limited way. It's a lawn space. And um, two faculty in architecture working very closely with leadership chairs, department chairs in theater, music, dance, and the School of Architecture director developed this set of tent- canopy structures and platforms. And it was really this COVID response idea that we could get Um, people outdoors to get through the pandemic and actually increase our spatial footprint without increasing the likelihood of um, spreading the virus, that's kind of evolved into a project that will have more permanence and we're still planning it right now. But the idea that we would have a social heart that would be an outdoor space for the activity of the college, which actually happens to be near the east parking decks where a lot of prospective students would arrive and they come through campus walk by right by this space and to see some of this activity that takes place within these buildings kind of broadcast to this outdoor space for everyone to see and also for faculty and students in different disciplines not just within the college but beyond these places to get together and meet for lunch um, to create these social spaces that are relatively inexpensive like in indoor space the cost per square foot is dramatically more than you know thoughtful landscape space it could be a real difference changer for our college like the social life in the community of our college and i start to imagine that kind of a project writ large what kinds of impacts it would have on the social life of the city and i think it's really exciting
0: yeah i think on a lot of a lot of times outdoor space is either viewed as a luxury or an afterthought in Charlotte in general and on UNC Charlotte's campus in particular. I mean, there's a lot of really great outdoor spaces, but I think there are also a lot of outdoor spaces that are just kind of left over. Maybe someone stuck a tree there once. They're not really programmed. Um, They're not really amenitized. And I I do wonder if we will long-term get away from that view of outdoor programmed amenitized space as either an afterthought or a luxury that, you know, is something you will only use a little of the time or something that, you know, is at a luxury apartment that costs a lot more.
1: Yeah, I get really, I get really excited about those possibilities. Um, and Catherine Horn's campus architect, who I really enjoy working with, um, as we were looking at the potential for the arts quad, she said, oh, this is going to be a very different kind of quad from what already exists on campus. We have wonderful outdoor spaces with fountains and benches and other amenities, but she described it as more work a day. We're going to have circus performers out there and dance recitals and we're going to have people just gathering for lunch and other kinds of activities. And You know, it it's not going to work when it's snowing in winter and it's probably not going to be that friendly when it's 95 degrees in August, but trees provide a lot of shade, um, we know outdoor air quality is vastly greater. I think we can start to imagine functions that we assumed would need to take place in indoor spaces. I think we're starting to see the potential for them to um, take place in in the outdoors or in quasi-conditioned spaces. Actually, um, the project that I was set to work on when I moved to Germany was the Dutch Institute for Nature and uh, uh, Research. In, the, in Wageningen in the eastern part of the Netherlands. And the whole idea behind the project was to take these office wings and span greenhouses between them. And greenhouses are single-glazed, inexpensive, off-the-shelf technology available throughout Holland. That's where they grow tulips that they're so famous for. And so by doing that, we basically converted a uh, Northern European climate, excuse me, into a Mediterranean climate just with a sheet of glass. And then we would shade them in the summertime to prevent them from overheating. Um, and then we'd open them up at night and then we would let all the sun in, in the winter time and then shade them to provide some insulation in the winter And, but suddenly, and it wasn't going to work 365 days of the year. But it was going to work 300 days of the year as opposed to 150 days of the year. And so very inexpensively, we converted, we created this quasi-outdoors, quasi indoor space that was the social heart of this research institute. Um, So I think the possibilities are unlimited and it will change. We tend to think of building envelopes and what's outside the building envelope. And I see this opportunity for a continuum of kind of thermally conditioned spaces. And, of course, greenhouses in Charlotte, maybe not such a great idea. It's going to overheat in the summertime. But, again, there's there's these swing spaces protected from the rain, provision of shade. Maybe they're outfitted with technology um, that we can use for, for performances for um, just Internet access. Um, so they're outfitted. The infrastructure is there to support our ever-evolving technological needs. But um, but again, it's more expensive. It's healthier. It makes a lot of sense. the The other thing I think about with this whole transition is maybe we invest less. And I'm an architect, so I shouldn't be saying this, but maybe we need to spend less on the building envelope and think more about the rapid evolution in technology. So many of the things that we've learned about going online, um, hybrid reality, they're not going away. I mean, we all want to get back to work. We all want to feel connected face to face in a community, but we will continue to use some of these technologies. So there are investments associated with that. And it just starts to make you wonder if there's a new kind of investment paradigm in the way that we think about the building of our cities to support this new reality.
0: Because it's something I know that you particularly care about and have uh, worked on, what are some of the sustainability implications for thinking about um, outdoor space differently, for thinking about, you know, what does work look like if we're not driving in five days a week, if we're driving somewhere two days a week, you know, whatever it might be. How do you see that? And how do you see that apply to Charlotte as a particular city, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I mean, the carbon footprint implications of not driving everywhere to get everywhere are enormous, of course. I think there's greater expectations for functional value in urban environments. As somebody who has a background in sustainable architecture, who's really interested in water, there's a huge impetus in um, stormwater management that's ecologically based green infrastructure. So we use bioswales and inflow planters and living roofs and all this stuff. So a water that might pick up motor oils and other toxins is not quickly delivered to our streams, but is filtered and it's cooled and cleansed. And cooler water holds more oxygen, which is really great for um, thriving fish populations, etc. So I think, but we're also wanting to have more affordability And so one of the really interesting things I think that's happening right now, again, we're kind of wanting there to be more function and more value in increasingly limited space. Um, So when I was in Oregon, the Department of Environmental Quality passed legislation which required that there would be more on-site stormwater management or slower residence time. So you keep that water as long as you can before you let it go to that storm drain before it enters an urban creek. If it's raining hard, 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 you don't contribute to a flooding problem downstream. And that water is cleaner because it's gone through biofiltration. That's great. The city's also saying, the city of Portland, for example, is saying we want more transit oriented development. We want more compact development. We want um, greater density to support our affordability goals and our public transportation goals. So you have one impetus which asks for more porosity in the urban environment and another impetus which is essentially going to produce more hardscape, and they could be on a collision course. And this is where I get really excited. And Again, my name is Brooke. I'm obsessed with water. What can I say? But where architects can uh, engage in infrastructural planning with engineers and many others, again, as we start to think about the landscape as this functional thing that also provides delight and spaces for people as well. So I start to see these three-dimensional puzzles of builtscapes and landscapes, and it's going to be essential that we get really creative about how we stack value and deliver more function in, again, an increasingly limited space.
0: I think you see some similar perceived conflicts arising in Charlotte around the city's 2040 vision plan. You know, I've, I've talked to developers who say, well, this document says... We want wider sidewalks, denser development, and to preserve the in-town tree canopy, and I don't know how I'm going to deliver that. So you see a lot of the, uh, similar conflicts that we're going to need some creativity to to get out of.
1: Yeah, it's a three-dimensional puzzle. If This is not just uh, looking in plan, but looking in section perspective, looking from the groundscape to the buildscape and the landscape all the way up to the skyscape and thinking about how we can... Um, resolve all these conflicts. Randy Hester was a landscape architecture professor at Berkeley for many years, and he wrote a book called Design for Ecological Democracy. It's this beautiful book. And he talks about conflict in design, like space pressures. I don't know how to resolve this thing. And he says that's the greatest opportunity for creativity. And so the, with water, to give you an example, there's this Rotterdam-based landscape Architectural and urban design practice called D Urban Easton, and they've designed these water squares in Rotterdam and other cities. And so one example, it's a civic space. It's a sunken basketball court outdoors. And then during major rain events, it's a basically stormwater holding pond. and nobody's out shooting hoops when it's pouring rain outside, but then it becomes this amenity for people. During sunny in sunny weather, so could we start to imagine not just the spatial dimension, but the temporal dimension as well, and that again, that's we're talking about stacking value um, and in in getting greater value out of the investments we make by virtue of the fact that we're trying to develop these more integrated solutions to urban space.
0: How do you see the design and architecture culture changing and evolving as Charlotte grows and? Connected to that, what do you think we need more of, and what do you think we need less of? and that can be either real physical structures or you know mental how we're thinking about things
1: well what I mean I don't have a car, so I'm a little biased here but um, when I one thing I think we need less of is parking. when I look at the parking ratios in the city i'm it's unbelievable to me, so it's very different in Portland it's very different in stuttgart. I see a large building going up right next to where I'm speaking with you right now and the parking structure is nearly as large as the building itself and it just that seemed a little out of whack and then a lot of these parking garages as I walk through them are not full and that's a lot of space so I hope we're imagining what the future lives of some of these parking garages are and that we're actually building in the opportunity for us to repurpose those spaces to suit
0: yeah Yeah, the the giant light rail adjacent parking garages are kind of a weird Charlotte phenomena here. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to really like them, except maybe the workers who get to drive right in and right out. But even they complain a lot because it takes forever to get in and out, and it costs you know 150 or 200 a month for your parking space there. So I wonder if COVID, you know, if we're not all driving five days a week, if that provides an opportunity for people to reassess how much parking it makes sense to build, because I've also talked to a lot of developers who complain about how much they cost.
1: Yeah, I would love to, and I know there's good rules of thumb about why, but I I do think the city is changing, expectations are changing, they're doing it in other cities, and I really think, again, as we start to realize increasingly limited real estate available, and the need for greater and greater value with respect to what space exists, that we start to reimagine the parking garage, that we could repurpose some of these structures. There's actually a, Herzog and de Miron is this very famous Swiss architectural practice, and they designed a parking garage in Miami. And it's so beautiful that people get married there. You can rent it out for weddings because of the views and just the way they configured these spaces. The ceilings are higher. I know that's really expensive. I know there are a lot of reasons why you would not do that. But they actually said, well, if we're going to have these spaces, we're going to imagine other uses taking place within them. And also, we need to imagine what other uses they might be converted to over time.
0: I've never heard of anyone getting married in a Charlotte parking garage. Not
1: yet. Eli. Not yet. The, the another thing I just see, I, I actually think it's a really difficult challenge, but an incredible opportunity I'm coming from Portland, Oregon. It's a temperate climate. Um, It rains all winter long. Nobody knows this. We never tell Californians, but it never rains in the summer. It's 75 degrees. It's dry. It cools off at night. There are no bugs. Um, That's a perfect climate if you're interested in passive um, cooling and passive ventilation strategies for an office building, for example. So if you can prevent overheating... You're really thoughtful about solar orientation and providing shade devices on the facades of buildings. You prevent overheating during the day, and then you ventilate that building at night. So a a building is like a solar battery, and if it's a concrete structure, for example, it will absorb heat during the day. And then you open it up at night, and you might do um, night ventilation of the thermal mass, the concrete structure is a mass that absorbs that heat and maybe it's fan-assisted, which is super low energy in comparison to the air conditioning. Um, And you let that heat at night dissipate, and you prepare it to be that heat absorber the next day. And you can reduce energy demand cooling load dramatically by thinking along those lines. Well, it's very different in a hot, humid climate. It doesn't cool off as much at night. But there are passive ways... To actually, As we think about orientation, we think about building envelopes, we think about ventilation strategies. There are ways that we can not necessarily achieve 100% passively conditioned buildings that would not be possible for complex building types, but we could sort of optimize climate response and dramatically reduce the upfront costs in mechanical equipment and also the operational costs of those buildings over their lives. And so when I think about, you know, we have a wonderful new school of architecture director, Blaine Brownell, came from the University of Minnesota, nationally recognized figure in sustainable design. I know he's interested in this, working with our excellent engineering college, thinking about low energy strategies in a hot, humid climate for urban buildings as opposed to single family residences. A lot of work to do there too, but it's this there's so much square footage of mechanically conditioned spaces. Um, and as we try to approach net zero, if we look at Architecture 2030s, this think tank that's trying to encourage that we reduce the carbon footprint of the built environment, um, and they say all of the low hanging fruit, we've already kind of addressed that with these climates that are more favorable, for example. What they're saying is that the tough nut is these more challenging climates and it's also um, converting the existing built environment to something that's much more energy efficient. So there are these gaps in knowledge and these opportunities for research. And one of the really cool things about our School of Architecture and the um, the community, the community of practice, there's this really close dialogue between the practitioner community and our professors and our students. And I just see that as this unbelievable partnership research opportunity where we can all grow and learn and help contribute to uh, a solution that we
0: we need. Well, a final question as we get close to wrapping it up here. If you were emperor for a day, whatever it might be, you had a magic wand, you could change anything about Charlotte, the built environment, anything about it. What Mm. would you choose and why? Well,
1: I, one of the things that struck me when I first visited here is how incredibly green it is. And the canopy is just amazing. And so I want to hang on to that. And so I know the urbanization is, you've written about this, um, urbanization is you know, impacting, compromising the, this can, canopy co- connectivity, which is honestly one of the first things that hits you on the head when you walk out of the airport and you take a lift into the south end or wherever. Um, so it's hanging on to things. I I really appreciate the way the city of Charlotte is talking about an integrated approach to, let's say the planning of the silver line. And if I were a czar of Charlotte, I, and as Dean of the college of arts and architecture, I haven't talked enough about the arts in this conversation, but bringing artists, storytellers, visual artists, others to conversations about The future of civic space making, my own experience working with artists that I mentioned, it's kind of a game changer. And we tend to think about housing as one thing, transportation as another thing, and um, these other elements of the urban environment as these kind of separate domains with separate expertise. And what we really need is a more integrated approach, and we also need outside the box thinking we also we can be thinking about civic space making that uncovers diverse histories that anticipates more resilient futures, so it might be less of a thing if I was Czar and more a process by which we imagine our collective futures. that would be my my dream or my mandate I should say given given the question
0: yeah, I think a lot of times art in the design conversation is is something. That gets stuck on at the end you know i've seen this in a lot of city council zoning meetings and discussions i've uh, covered for years and years where you know big projects going through and then at the end at the very end it's like okay we're gonna we have fifty thousand dollars for a sculpture that the developer is going to add here and we'll stick that sculpture in this plaza and a lot of times that's the extent of the um overlap or inclusion there and you know it's like a little shiny bauble to put on at the at the end of the design so.
1: Exactly. And a more integrated process. And you know what? A lot of times it saves you a lot of money. If that's you know, I know there's a bottom line to the decisions that we make, but a more integrated process that's cognizant of all of these different dimensions and these evolving expectations about the urban environment. We have to think of it in kind of synergistic terms where three moves produce 70 effects as opposed to 70 moves producing 70 effects. And the artist's role, or one of the roles of the artist, is to kind of recast assumptions, problematize the way we're even thinking about how we're working on something. And I've just found it useful again and again and again and again to bring um, artists to the table at the beginning of the process to help us question, is this the approach? Is this even the problem? Is this the way we should proceed? And more often than not or almost every time it produces an outcome that's better that might be cheaper again and we never even would have begun to have considered it had we not brought that team to bear on on the, the project in question
0: well brooke thank you so much for taking the time to join me today i really appreciate it and i hope that we can talk again sometime soon in person hop on the light rail and you know get out of uh get out of this spare closet i'm recording in
1: i would appreciate that eli keep up the good work
0: thanks for joining us on the future charlotte podcast produced by me eli portillo at the unc charlotte urban institute keep looking to the future charlotte